0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus paints a frightening picture in today's gospel. He says, brother will deliver brother unto death. Parents will betray their own children. He says that his disciples will be maligned by all. Indeed, he says, you will be hated by all for the sake of his name. And you want to say... Good pep talk, Jesus. Great. Thanks. Who's excited to go out now for the sake of his name? It's a frightening picture that he paints. Frightening enough, perhaps, to cause us, as his disciples, to zip our lips. To think, you know what, is it really worth it? Or maybe I can be a Christian, but just kind of on the down low folks don't have to know that I follow Jesus. I can just kind of be a secret Jesus follower. I think that there's something about this frightening picture that Jesus paints that would cause you and me to cow a little bit, to bend back in fear and say, you know what, instead I think I'm just going to keep quiet about this whole Jesus thing. But then, then he gives us the antidote. The antidote to fear. And what is the antidote to fear? It's Wait for it. Fear. (laughs) He says, do not fear those that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, he says, fear God who can cast both soul and body into hell. The antidote to fear is fear. That we would not be afraid of men but instead be fearful of God. What Jesus is showing us is is that it's not a question of whether or not you or I will have fear, but what or whom we will fear. It's not a question of whether you'll be afraid, but who you'll be afraid of, and if it's in the right place. See, our Lord, by these words, is inviting you and me to live into, to inhabit this tension of faith. And this tension of faith, this paradox, if you will, is that we are to be fearfully fearless. We are to be fearfully fearless. That on the one hand, we have no fear, have no fear of others, have no fear of the the consequences of the confession of faith that we have in Christ. But on the other hand, and at the same time... We have that fearlessness precisely by fearing God, by fearing the Lord, by fear loving and trusting him above all else. And it's not an either or, it's a both and at the same time. This is the tension that I want us to to live with and that I want to dwell in a little bit this morning, to think about how as believers, by faith, we are fearfully fearless. And my hope is that as we live in that tension, as we become more comfortable dwelling in it, we might have that kind of courage to confess the name of Jesus and not to cow and fear before the frightening picture that he gives. But to do this, to think about it, I think it's helpful to to kind of look at both sides, to look at both sides of that paradox, of that tension, and to think about what happens when we lean too much or all the way in one direction. So let's look at both sides that way, starting with this one. Um, What about when you have all fear of the Lord? You leave behind that fearlessness side, but you only focus on the fear, on the fear of God. And you allow that to be your whole prepossessing focus. I think there's a, a lot to be said for that, to be sure. We all know the words of Proverbs. Proverbs says over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that that's that's the starting point. People of a certain generation would still talk about how other folks are are good, God-fearing folks, right? We don't talk that way as much anymore, but it was capturing this idea. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see it throughout the scriptures. The prophets coming before God, seeing him in all his glory. You think of, of the prophet Isaiah, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees the, the angels, the cherubim, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah doesn't say, Huh, I have no fear. This is, this is easy for me to stand before him. No, he falls down. He says, oh, woe is me, because he sees the Lord aright. He has that fear of the Lord. You, you think of the vision that St. John gets in the book of Revelation. He sees Jesus, and this is Jesus, not as people saw him in his earthly ministry. But this is the glorified, risen Christ. In Revelation 1, it says, I see one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And what does John do when he sees this vision of our Lord Jesus? He hits the deck, Right? He falls down flat, and it was appropriate for him to do so. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I think it's also the case that that kind of fear can be taken too far. If all you focus on is the fear of the Lord, and you think that that is really not just the beginning of wisdom, but that's the whole life of faith, I think that it can take you down some pretty dark roads. And that's happened through the history of the church, One of the most famous examples in this country was from a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached what is perhaps the most famous sermon in American history, for better or for worse. The title of it was Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Hmm. Let me read to you just from a little bit of this sermon. He says, "...the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider." I don't like holding spiders. I don't know. Maybe you guys do. But he says, Much like one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, he is dreadfully provoked, you are 10,000 times more abom- abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Who's well, not inspired by that, Right this, I submit to you, is when the fear of the Lord has gone off the rails, and you have lost the sense of the fear of the Lord as an awe-inspiring reverence before the God of all creation, which is appropriate for us to have. And instead, it's just turned into an abject kind of, I'm afraid of getting beaten, right? I don't want to end up in the fires of hell. That's not what we're talking about with the fear of the Lord. And I think if that kind of Jonathan Edwards picture of fear goes too far, it leads you to this distorted picture of who God is. You get the sense that he's just some sort of capricious king or or some vicious tyrant who's like, I've got you like a spider over the fire. Am I going to drop you? Oh, I caught you. Okay, but am I going to hold you? Is that where God really wants you and me to live? Is that his heart? By no means. We live in the fear of the Lord, that proper sense of awe at his transcendence, his, his majesty. We should live there. It's the beginning of wisdom. But we also hear at the same time that voice of our Lord Jesus. The same Jesus whom John saw in all of his glory, in that terrifying, awe-inspiring vision, who saw him with the, the hair, the snow-like wool, who heard his voice, the thundering of many waters. That same Jesus sees John flat on his face and what are the first words out of his mouth. Fear not, fear not, for I died and behold, I am the living one and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Fear not. It's that fear not that we heard out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus in today's gospel. Not once, but twice, but three times. Fear not, he says. Author Martin Franzman says that that triple fear not is a kind of triple brass armor that you and I have as people of faith. That we know that while we have that proper fear of the Lord, we are also at the same time fearless. That's the life of faith. Fearfully fearless. Living in that tension of both-and at the same time. But if it's true, as it is, that you can only focus on the fear of the Lord, and if you do so, it leads to a a distorted picture of, of what that fear means. Indeed, a distorted picture of God himself. It's also true that we can get such distortions if we only focus on the fearlessness side. And we forget or neglect the fear of the Lord. And here too, I think it can be understandable, especially in view of some of the other attributes of our God. Most especially, the love of God. The love of God is so radiant, so glorious, so majestic that I think that it can even cloud out some of these other attributes, such as the fear of the Lord. And this happens. This happens in our own day. And it happens in part from the scriptures, from a right understanding of the scriptures. First John chapter 4 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, the love of God now has driven out that sense of servile fear, that knee-knocking fear of, of punishment, of thinking, okay, God is going to give it to me. He's just going to drop the hammer on me one day. Now, to the extent that we know his perfect love, we don't need to live in that sort of afraid, being afraid any longer. Now we live in that bold, courageous faith that knows his love to the deepest part of our being. But what if that's all we focus on? What if that's all we hear about and talk about is the love of God, the love of God, the love of God? If we had to choose, people would say, between his love and the the fear of him, of course we would choose love. But that's not a choice that we have to make or that we should make. Because just as having only a focus on that fear of the Lord leads to a distorted picture of him, so too does a, a singular focus on the love of God. Where does that take you to? Well, I think what that can take you to is if all you talk about is, is love and God is so kind and, and nice, is it can start to bring you to kind of a, a pretty milk toast version of our Lord, right? Kind of a buddy Jesus. Like, hey, this is somebody who I, I might hang out with as a friend, but I'm certainly not looking at him as worthy of worship. That's not who God is either. He's not just a, another homeboy that we might hang out with. He is the God of all creation, the one who is holy, 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 who, as John sees, holds the universe in his hands. That love of God must be joined with the fear of God. And why is that? Ultimately, because if you divorce those two, you will not see or understand or appreciate the awesome, awe-inspiring, terrible sacrifice that our Lord Jesus underwent. See, when Jesus hangs on the cross, it's not just to show us how nice God is. It's because there he is enduring and taking onto himself God's just wrath on sin that you and I deserve. He absorbed that into himself, took all of that just punishment so that now you and I can stand before God knowing his love. A love that is not just a winking at sin, but a love that has made manifest most of all in the suffering, in the blood-stained hands of our Savior. You want to see the love of God? See it there. It is a fearful, loving thing. That's where we live, in that tension of being fearfully fearless. We can be fearless before God precisely because of the fearful consequences that God's Son took for you and for me. And then, and then, brothers and sisters, when we have that kind of faith, we're able to proclaim the name of Christ with boldness, to live lives of faithfulness after the pattern of our Lord Jesus. In this vein, I can't help but think of so many of the martyrs of Christianity throughout the ages, and in particular, one of my favorite martyrs. Pastors are weird in many ways, but this is one of them. We have favorite martyrs. One of my favorite martyrs is this guy by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of St. John, actually. The John who wrote the Gospel of John, who saw the vision of Revelation. So this is just like the next generation of the church. It's this guy, Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John, and he goes on to be the bishop of Smyrna, the town of Smyrna in Europe, as a faithful man all throughout his life, helping to shepherd other believers to follow our Lord. Well, he lived a very long life did Polycarp, well into his 80s. And all throughout that way, he managed to avoid the persecution that had come to many believers in that period, in that time frame. But then, suddenly a a new persecution in the Roman Empire broke out. And the way that they would often work is to go precisely for the leaders. The philosophy was, cut off the head and the body will die. And so, they go after one of the most revered leaders in all of Christendom, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Men come to his house in the middle of the night, and they say, all right, here you go. Now's your time to come with us. And he doesn't fight back. He doesn't look for some way to, to weasel out of it. He knows what awaits him. But all the while, they're saying, hey, you're an old man. Have respect for your age. Just renounce Christ. That's all you've got to do. Renounce Christ and proclaim Caesar, and you can go back to your nice warm bed, Polycarp. He stays silent. Over and over again, they're hurling insults at him, inciting him. Just renounce Jesus, revile him. You don't even have to really believe it in your heart. Just say it with your lips that you revile Christ. He doesn't do it. Finally, they take him, as they took many martyrs in the early church, to the stadium. Where hundreds, perhaps thousands, are gathered together. And the wild beasts are there. Not having been fed for a while. They say, okay, Polycarp. We are prepared to release the beasts on you if you don't revoke your faith and revile Jesus. Do it now, or you are going to be torn limb from limb. And now, finally, Polycarp, who has been quiet up to this point, refusing to uh, respond to them with anything but a quietness of faith and prayer to the Father. Finally, now he speaks, and what's he going to say? Is he going to seize this opportunity to save his skin? Is he going to live in that fear of men, or indeed fear of beasts? I think that it would be understandable for any of us to do so, and perhaps to repent later and to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry, but you know, those were pretty big fangs, okay? And I think you'll understand and forgive me. And indeed, Jesus would have, but is that what he did? Instead, living a life of fearful fearlessness, here's what Polycarp says. For 86 years, I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Here's a man who has his fears in the right places. Because it's not a question of whether you or I will have a fear but what we'll be afraid of. And if you lack the fear of God, something else is going to rush in to take that place. It might be the fear of the opinion of others. It might be the, the fear of a boss, an employer. It might be the fear of, of governments, fear of sickness, of death, in the grave. If you don't fear God, to paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, if you don't fear God, you don't fear nothing. You fear anything. But now, in Christ, we are able to live by a bold faith, a faith that holds together that fear of the Lord with a fearlessness of men. When you fear God, you have nothing to be afraid of. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.